Well, so glad you guys are here. Uh, I noticed we have engaged our supplemental cooling system in the back. Thank you, whoever did that. Uh, we need that, I think. Uh, so uh, have patience, if you would. Uh, this is an itty-bitty room, and there are a ton of people in it right now. So uh, hey, we're all in it together. Are we OK with that? <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. That's good. I'm excited to be with you in the Word of God this morning. Uh, so if you would, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Can you all hear me okay? Yeah. Can't hear myself. It's not saying much. I don't hear great. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our text for this morning is verses 26 through 31. So I'd like to begin just by reading that together, okay? Let's just look at it. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're going to look in our text today at uh, breaking down the calling of God, because what is Paul calling his audience to do? To consider their calling. And I think it's only appropriate that as we read these words that we might do the same. I hope you agree. As he calls his audience to consider your calling, that's what we need to do. Consider your calling this morning. If we have left this room together today and we have not had an internal uh, contemplation over our condition as we were called into the grace of God, then something has gone terribly wrong. This is what we are called to do in the word of God this morning is consider our calling. Consider your condition as you are called by the grace of God. And so how does he do this? He begins by looking first at the cause of God's calling. And we'll see that in verse 26. The cause of God's calling. Let's see what it is. You ever considered this as you consider your calling? Why did God call me unto salvation? Have you ever wondered that? Have you considered? And then did you consider that it was because you were wise? Did you consider it was because you were powerful? Did you consider possibly that you were of noble birth? See, there was something about your bloodline that made God call you. Paul wants to affirm for us that in fact it is none of these things. And how does he know that to be the case? Because it wasn't true of them. So if you think that God called you because you were wise, he says, you need to really consider what I'm saying to you, is what he's saying. How many of you were wise? And he says to them, not many. According to worldly standards, not many of you were wise. I just want you to think about the impact of that for a second. He says, according to worldly standards, he knows the people there, by the way. And he says, I, I know you. And I'm thinking about how the world considers wise people. And I know that wasn't you for sure. So that wasn't it. It was not your wisdom. 
that God looked at it and he saw it and he said, now there's a smart individual. Finally, something I can work with. I'll call you. I can use you. Now he says, not many. That means that possibly some of them were, actually. Do you see the possibility for that? Not many of you were. And that's actually the emphasis, isn't it? And then he says, also, not many of you were powerful. Powerful. And not many were of noble birth. Now, let's just reflect for a second on where we've come from. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. Do you see it? It should just be right there. What does he immediately say as he begins this letter to them? He says, Paul. And what's the next word? Called. Called by the will of God. All right, look at verse 2. The church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see that? Paul was called. The entire church was called. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Does he want them to see something right away? I would have to say that he does. Keep in mind that the big issue for the Corinthian church was pride and boasting. And now he has gotten to a place to where he has called out this report of quarreling among them. Remember, they, it was reported to me that there are quarrels among you. That's what he just said. And what he wanted for them was to all be of the same mind, the same thinking. Because if we can all think the same way, then we're all going to be behaving the same way. And if we're behaving the same way and looking at the world the same way, all these little quarrels that we have are going to come to nothing because we're actually not going to quarrel at all because we're thinking the same thing about these things, right? Good example So we all love that the doors are red over here, right? All of us see those as a wonderful color red, right? And we all love the red doors. See, we're all thinking the same way. We all love the red doors, okay? If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's a long conversation about these red doors, okay? I don't think anyone is opposed to the red doors. They just disagree that they're red. I I think they're red, okay? But you get how if we were all of the same mind, that actually that would lead to no quarrels about it. Not that we're actually literally having quarrels about that. Don't misunderstand me. But you get how the same mind produces the same way of behaving so that it eliminates quarrels, right? That makes sense, doesn't it? So he says, you have all been called, but there are quarrels, and the quarrels among you are being produced out of selfish ambition and jealousy. Didn't we look at that and see that that was actually the issue? Selfish ambition and jealousy, They were actually, in promoting these other speakers, really promoting themselves. And Paul said, that's not how it should be. In fact, you are elevating wisdom and worldly speech in such a way that you think that people are actually coming into salvation or being sanctified by means of a person who can speak well. Let's get someone who is wise to speak to us according to worldly standards. Let's get someone who's powerful. Let's get someone of nobility in here. Let's get somebody who has a name for themselves. They can do something for us. And also, I like to brag as I go about my business that uh, that person is part of my church, right? Because then it elevates me. But God, in his wisdom, was glad to save those who believe. How? Through the folly of preaching through the foolishness of what we preach. The world looks at what we're preaching and what we're saying, and they say, 
That's the greatest bit of wisdom I've ever heard in my life. No, in fact, they say the exact opposite. And they say what this church is saying is foolishness. Because in fact, what we preach is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. And this is what we believe, and this is what unifies us. Yes? And we are unified by the Spirit of God among us. So the Corinthian believers then are summoned by Paul in our text this morning. In verse 26, and he says, So, in light of all this, consider your calling, brothers. Were you yourself wise when God called you? And that's the reason he called you. Were you yourself, what's the next thing he says? Powerful. No, that wasn't you either, was it? Were you yourself of noble birth when God called you? No, that's, that's not it. And it wasn't true with many of them. There were some, actually, we know, who did have a standing in the eyes of men that were part of this church. Crispus, you remember his name? 1 Corinthians 1.14, he was the former leader of the Jewish synagogue there in Corinth. So he had a little bit of a standing before men, didn't he? Then there's Erastus, which I have always loved Erastus's name. Romans 16.23, Erastus stayed in the city of Corinth, and he was actually the city treasurer of Corinth. And he became a believer, and he stayed there in Corinth with them. He was the city treasurer of Corinth. Do you remember what we said about Corinth? Did Corinth have a lot of money? Yeah, and this guy was in charge of it. And he belonged to their church. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So he had a name. He had standing. And then, of course, there was Chloe, which we don't know anything about. But we know her name, and that means something. Because it meant something to them. So obviously this woman also had standing among them. But his point is this. As you consider your life and the cause of God's calling, was it because you were wise? Answer, no. Was it because you were powerful? Answer, no. Was it because you were of noble birth? The answer to that, of course, is no. All these are no. So consider your condition. What is the cause of God's calling? If it's not those things. What is the cause of God's calling? Maybe we can answer it this way. The cause of God's calling is according to his own purpose and grace. And we know for certain that he is not persuaded in his choice by human knowledge, power, or status. God's calling is according to his own purpose and grace. And he is not persuaded in his choice, in his calling, in his choosing, by knowledge, by power, or by status. Why does he need to bring this up? Because obviously they thought that these things were true. Now, they might say with their mouth, no, I don't think God called me because I'm smart. No, I don't think God called me just because, you know, I'm of a certain class. But maybe it's that they really did consider these things in their heart. They really did think there was something special about them, and that's why God called them. And I just wonder, have you ever... If you can be honest, have you ever maybe thought that? I know, well, I mean, I know. I'm, you know, trying to be humble here. But, I mean, I get it. I get why God called me. I mean, I see it, you know. God needed this talent in the church. You know what I mean? God needed this face in the church. Look at all he can do with it. 
God needed my skill. He needed my wisdom. He needed my power. He needed my authority. So I get it. Now, I didn't deserve to be saved, but I know why he did. I'm needed. But that's not true. Right? We know that in our hearts, right? How do we know that it's according to God's purpose and God's grace? I want to read just two passages for you. They're on the screen. Uh, Well, the references are on the screen. You'll have to actually look at your Bible to read them with me. But Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, just, just hear what it has to say. Just remember, these are also Paul's words, okay? Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Listen, this, this part's significant. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Do you hear the cause of God's choosing and God's calling? What is it? According to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There are both things. Did you see it in the text or did you hear it? Another place, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is Paul talking. But share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. There it is again. That's why God called. That's why God chose. It had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with your goodness. It had nothing to do with any quality in you that he saw that he said, ah, I can work with that. God does not need something to work with. We know that foundationally is how he brought this very universe into create into existence, right? Did God need pre-existent materials? He said, oh, finally, something came into existence that I can work with. Or did God simply speak into being all things that are, and before he spoke it, there was nothing. God does not need pre-existent material to work with in you. Good thing, because there isn't any. There is nothing in you that he needs to work with. It is his grace. It is his purpose. It is his will. It is his goodness. It is his blessing on you. There was nothing in you that caused him to call you by his grace. No. It is all of him. So what does that produce in our hearts? It should produce a humility before him. It should produce thankfulness in our hearts. It should also produce a reliance on him to continue doing that work of saving. Wouldn't you agree? That leads us to another application, doesn't it? Is it you who by your power then save other individuals? If I could just speak the gospel clear enough, they'll hear it. I know it. I just, let me, you're having trouble witnessing that person? I'll tell you what, put me in front of them. I'll show them. I'll give them that gospel, you know? But in reality, that may be a way that we think sometimes. They won't believe you and your arguments? Let me see. I'll put them away. That could be a temptation. Or it could also be the temptation on the reverse side. I don't know how to speak to people. I can't win people to the Lord. I can't break down their arguments. You don't need to. Now, should we be prepared to give a defense? Scripture says yes. But is God relying on your power and your wisdom to do this work? 
No, but can we convince ourselves that he is? Man, if I was just smarter, God would have saved that person. Well, think about what you're saying. That's not true, right? We're all thinking the same way on this, right? I hope so. That's what the scripture says. God's calling of the individual unto salvation is not merited by anything of value preceding a special work of God's grace in their life. That includes you, that includes me. That hits home, doesn't it? So, likewise, God is also not impressed by superficial human qualities of greatness. You know that too, right? Now, that's a smart person. God is impressed. God is impressed by how smart you are. God is impressed by how righteous you are. God is impressed by how much wealth you were able to accumulate. But sometimes we actually, can we not, think that God may be impressed. And if he is impressed, and if we can impress God enough, he might give us extra favor and blessing on our life. So we work to impress God so that God might bless us in return. But that's not correct. In fact, you were given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places as a free gift of God while you had no righteousness of your own. You already have all the blessing of God. You have it all in Christ Jesus. You don't need to impress him. Christ Jesus impressed God for us in our place. What does that do to your life? It should bring a sense of comfort into your life. It should bring a sense of reliance on your life and also humility, right? You working to earn the favor of God today? Stop. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ, the one who has the favor of God. That's what you need. Now, should we be diligent in our faith? Yes. Yes. But are you going to be liked more by God at the end of, of, at the, end of the day because you were good enough? No. You are never good enough at the end of the day. So if we can go ahead and settle that before the day gets done, I think we're good to go. I am ne- wait, I'm never going to be good enough by the end of this day. But thank God that Christ Jesus is good enough for me every day with every breath that I take. And I trust in him for his goodness, not my own. My goodness didn't save me. My goodness didn't qualify me to be saved. I trusted in Jesus Christ for my salvation. I trust in him today for my sanctification. I trust in him to keep me unto glorification. It is all a work of God. Don't you see? Don't trust in yourself. You can't trust in yourself. So how does God choose? Is it a roll of the dice? You know, when you were were born, God was like, I don't know. You know, he saw me come come out. I was born. There there he is. What are we going to do with this one? save or not to save or not to save? I don't know. Let's roll the dice. Does that seem right? To call or not to call? I don't know. Is he good looking enough? Is he going to be smart enough? Is he going to be powerful enough? Is he going to be good enough? The answer to all of those is no. So then, how and why does God choose and call? That's what the text is saying. We are called, are we not? How did God call Israel? Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and your, the Lord your God has chosen you 
out of all the people for his treasured possession, out of all the people on all the face of the earth. And so Israel says, all right, I knew it. I mean, look at how good we are. And so we are a good-looking group of people. And actually, isn't that a big problem with Israel all throughout history? They always thought they were pretty good. And God was always cutting them down to size and saying, no, you're not. In fact, why did God choose them? He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord God set his love on you and chose you because, in fact, you were the fewest of all people, actually. It's not like God needed something to work with because you remember the promise given to Abraham that he was going to have descendants that were as great as the, numbers, the, the number of sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. So God was like, well, let me find the most numerous people on the planet so I have something to work with and I can produce this great population. No, he chose the people with the fewest. He said, that's what I'll work with. God takes the smallest, the fewest. What we're going to see is the weakest, the poorest, the most foolish. That's the one he picks to show that he has the power and he has the goodness. He's the one that does the work so that no one can boast. Our God is a good God. And why does he choose? According to the purpose of his grace and the purpose of his will. And to that we say, we trust in that. Do you trust in the purpose of God's grace? Do you trust in his will? Do you trust in the calling of God? I hope that you do, because without the calling of God, there is no salvation. So trust in God's calling. And no, please, let me just add this. As we are living for the gospel out in this world, and as we are sharing the gospel with people, with our family, with one another, let's never tend to think that it is our goodness or our wisdom or anything in us that brings people to salvation. And it is nothing in us that keeps salvation for us. None of that is true. But can we be a people who are tempted to think that way? If you think you cannot be tempted that way, and you're thinking too much of yourself, we can all be tempted that way because that is the pride of life. That is the pride of the flesh. We think we are good enough, unfortunately. That's where we're tempted to live. That's where we, we're tempted to be. But we have to re pull the reins on that and, and say what Scripture says about us and about our calling. So consider your calling, okay? Why did God call you unto salvation? You put your hands up and you say, I don't know. It must have just been his purpose and his grace and according to his will, which is good, because it had nothing to do with me. Right? Good. Next, we're going to look at in our text, verses 27 through 29, the purpose of God's calling. So why did God call? Why did God choose? What is the cause of that? Well, we've looked at that, but what is the purpose behind this? What is the purpose of God calling? That's what verses 27 through 29 address. So let's look at it again. But God chose, so he didn't choose because of that. So instead, here's how God chose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It says in, 
really in, in word order. What is foolish in the world? God chose that. What is weak in the world? God chose that. What is low in the world and despised? God chose that. And he took the nothings to make the something of the world nothing. That's what he did. God chose the nothings to bring to nothing the things the world thinks are something. That's pretty good. We are the nothings. And we praise God that he chose the nothings. The fools we are, the weak ones we are. That's right. You're going to see how this all turns out at the end of our text. It's so good. The reversal here is so good. But yes, we were the foolish ones, the weak ones, the low and despised. You notice that it says what in your text? God chose what? Are we talking about things? Are we talking about people? Shouldn't it be who? Those who? Well, we know that he's talking about people, right? God chose the foolish ones, the people of the world, the weak ones of the world, the low and despised ones. Those are who God chose. And it is in direct response to the way the world thinks. You see, not many of you were wise, powerful, of noble birth. In fact, you were the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised. You can't get any more extreme opposite than that, right? So God didn't choose this extreme. In fact, he went to the very opposite end of the spectrum, and he scraped the bottom of the barrel for us. That's you, and that's me, the nothings. Is that offensive to you? If it is offensive to you, what you are being offended by is the truth of the gospel. Because in, in order to see the good news of Christ Jesus, what you must first see is the bad news of your condition. And when your eyes are open to the bad news of your condition, that you're a nothing, it hurts. Because why? Because you think you're something. You think there is goodness in you. You think there is wisdom in you. You think there is power in you. You think there is something in you worth something. But the gospel says to you, wrong. The gospel says to you, you are the nothings. And left without the good news of Jesus Christ, there is only bad news coming for you. And the bad news is the wrath of God for sin. Right? So God in his wisdom, he intentionally chose contrary to what the world considers great, what the world considers valuable, what the world considers something <laughs> And he took that something, and he's going to make it nothing. And he's going to show the world's wisdom is nothing. The world's wisdom is actually foolishness. And what you say is foolishness is actually wisdom. It's, a, it's the direct reversal of what the world thinks. And God is pleased to do so. I love that. That's what, our text, that's what I said in our text last week. Do you remember? He was pleased to do so. This pleases God to show the world how foolish they are. He will do it. But in the gospel, don't you, don't you see that we also come to a realization of how foolish we are? Do you, do you see that realization? Believers in the room, do you see regularly in your life how foolish you are? I hope you do. I see it all the time. In, not, not in you. <laughs> well, yeah, let, let's let, one by one come up and I'll tell you the foolish things I see. I see it in myself all the time. I, I see how foolish I am. 
But you know, the only time we see that we are not wise enough, we are not good enough, is when we compare ourselves to the standard of God himself. As you compare yourself to God, as you compare yourself to the word, how do you measure up? And if you measure yourself properly, then you realize how far you have to go, right? I see that I have nothing in me. I see that I have so far to go. And what does that do? Does that produce discouragement in you? Just give up then. You're never going to do it. Just stop. Just give up. Or does it produce in you a reliance on the power of God to do it himself? If God saved me, he's going to sanctify me because he promised he would do so. And if he's going to sanctify me here, you know what he's also going to do? He's also going to glorify you. So trust in the work of God in your life. He's not going to save you and then leave you. He is going to sanctify you. He is going to glorify you. Trust in the goodness of God and his promises. Your goodness doesn't get you there. Your faith in Christ by the calling of God is what gets you there. And we rely on the work of Christ to get us there. All this comes together, doesn't it? Let's just talk for a second what I believe to be the heart of this passage, and that is in terms of honor and shame. And the issue is the Corinthians were in need of a value system change. Please hear this. I, I really hope that you, you see with me that this is the heart of the problem for the Corinthians. Their value system was messed up. And they needed, by the Spirit of God, according to the Word of God, their value system to change. I was, I was telling the elders about this in our, in our meeting, as we, we always go over what we're going to be talking about today, praying for the church. And, and so... As I sit and I contemplate for hours on end, Sam, in about a split second, came up with a word that I couldn't come up with. So he said, recalibrate. I said, yes, that's it. Thank you. I, could, I said that in probably like 15 minutes. Sam gets one word. There we go. So recalibrate. That is right. That's good. Thank you, Sam. We, we must recalibrate. But you know what? That was the issue for the, for the Corinthians. They they were operating a particular way with a particular value system, but that value system was according to the world. And so they needed to change their value system to see the proper things as what is of value, honor, and the proper things that are shameful. Because that's what we're talking about, honor and shame. That's your value system. The things that you hold in honor and the things that you shame. You, you all thinking about certain things with me right now? You know that some of the things you honor are not actually biblical. You've just created that. You made that up, right? That's, that's what you see as good. But what we need to do is constantly be recalibrating our value system to make sure the things we honor are the things the word honors, and the things we shame are the things the word tells us to shame, right? How is this playing out here? Well, later on in 1 Corinthians 11, he's going to give them instructions on the Lord's Supper. So we get a glimpse into the heart of the church here when he, when he talks about it. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 22. He said, you, you should know this because I, could, well, not just I, but we, we read this nearly every time we do the Lord's Supper together, okay? It says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, and why? For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate, that word is shame, those who have nothing? So what were they valuing 
and it created a big problem in the church. They were valuing money and status. And they were showing their money and status when they came together as a church to have the Lord's Supper. That's a big, big problem. So if we had the Lord's Supper and it was a big meal and everybody brings their own food to eat, you know what you'd also bring? All your own utensils, right? And as you bring your own food and as you bring your own utensils and everybody sits in their own little spot, it's like, okay, this family has like, you know, everything's broken and mismatched and, uh, you know, the food clearly just came out of a box, right? A cheap box at that. And then you look over at this table and they have gold plates, gold silverware, they have more than enough luxurious food, and there they are eating and drinking and getting drunk because they have so much. And then they look over at these people, and what have they just done to them? They have shamed them. Why? Because they're poor. Wrong value system. Right? We do this, too, in different ways. Well, it's maybe sometimes in that way, right? We need to be very, very careful that we do not have the world's value system and then we operate on that value system among us and we're honoring certain things, but we're honoring it because the world honors that. And then we're shaming certain things like poor, the poor or those who don't have much knowledge, we shame them. Sorry, you can't be part of this conversation. You're not smart enough, right? Oh, you haven't read that book? Okay, well, we all have read that book, sorry. Oh, you don't listen to those sermons? Oh, well, we do, so. You go over there with the people who, who are the nothings, and we'll be over here as the people who are the somethings. Wrong value system. And you're shaming things that God himself is not shaming. God has given us all honor in Christ Jesus. We needed shame. We should have been shamed. But instead of shame, he gave us honor. And then you look at them and you shame them. Wrong value system. And shame on us if we do that. Right? Are we all thinking the same on that? We do not live that way. We do not operate that way. We should not, according to Scripture, right? Scripture is our standard, is it not? So we need to make sure that we're all conforming to the same standard in our thinking. That's, that's Paul's point. So we all think the same way, which means we think the same about everything. And if we're all thinking the same way, none of us are dishonoring and shaming the poor or those who don't have knowledge or an education. Who cares? Who are you? You have nothing. I'm talking to myself, right? That's why I talk passionately. Who am I? Think you have something, right? Think you have knowledge. Think you have good speaking ability, right? Think you have talent. You're nothing. I am nothing. Think God needs me to run a church? No, he does not. But by the grace of God, even in my pride, he still uses me. And the same for you. In the midst of your pride, do you know he still uses you? Because he's a good and merciful God. He does not give us what we deserve. But in Christ Jesus, he gave us the exact opposite of what we deserve. Are we thankful to God for the work that he has done? We're going to be sure that we have a proper value system. 
Are we going to be careful, right? We need to be careful to cultivate an environment that functions according to a gospel-centered value system. You know, I, I was thinking, we, there are, there, we're starting to become kind of a conglomeration of cultures here. Have you noticed this here in our church, I mean? I mean, I don't know how many different locations we have uh, represented here, but we have lots. Do you know that? It's super exciting, isn't it, by the way? Uh, we have people from all over the place. If you didn't know, if maybe you're new, I am not from here. I am from Michigan, although people from Michigan no longer say that I sound like I'm from Michigan. Uh, they say I'm from the deep south with my, ac- with my southern accent. <laughs> so uh, that's the way they see it. Uh, but we're all from very different places. And do you know what we bring with us? Our value system. Do you know that the Southeast United States has a value system? Do you know that rural Southeast United States has a value system? And if we're not careful, we equate the value system that we're from with the biblical value system. Now, are all things wrong in that value system? No, that's not what we're saying. Just want to make sure you hear what I'm saying. But could there be things part of that value system that you give honor to, but the scriptures actually never said to give honor to that, but you in this value system, you do. Who said? Why, why must we honor that? Why must we value that? Did scripture say so? Well, our culture says so. Well, if it's one of these things that it doesn't matter whether you give honor to it, right? I, I, I think of a lot of things right now, but it's not the point. There are certain things that it's like, hey, if the culture honors that, that is what Paul was saying, I became all things to all people that I might save some of them. Paul knew that that was okay to be ingrained in a culture, but only so far as it did not remove him from being identified with Christ primarily, right? So is it okay to have part of your culture operating within you? The answer hopefully you've seen with me is yes, that is good. Part, uh, Paul had a, a heart for his own kinsmen, didn't he? And they had a culture, didn't they? And he loved them, and he loved their culture. If you love your culture, that's fantastic, but please don't see it as perfect. And please don't try to make the church culture match exactly the culture that surrounds it, because what we want to conform to is not cultural values, but biblical values. And sometimes those are going to clash, wouldn't you agree? So we need to be ready because if we find that biblical values clash with cultural values, how's that going to settle with you? Oh, it's going to hurt, isn't it? Like a knife in the heart. That's not okay. I thought that was okay my whole life. Yeah, but it's not. And we want to be gentle with that, do we not? So we need to be very careful. I want to show just... Uh, one passage, James 2. This is a good one. James 2, 1 through 9. You already know it, Sherry? Are you laughing? I mean, I'm excited, yeah. James 2, 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man... Wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. You've got to just picture it with me, right? Can you imagine it? When we were all having to force together to make some empty seats, and, and, and this situation presented itself. 
just try to go there with me. A man in fine clothing and a gold ring, right, which to us, you know, contextualize that, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in. You have those two people standing here needing a seat? You look at the one who's wearing the fine clothing and you say to them, you, come over here, I have a good place for you to sit. While you say to the poor one, uh, there's no room, stand over there, sit down on my feet, a place of shame, a place lower than yourself. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's not the way God sees it. Why is that the way you see it? Why are you, make, why are you being partial to some and not to others? Why when you see someone who is poor or not like you, you like them less? You're like, uh, they, don't, they don't look like me. They don't act like me. They don't smell like me. I am well kept. I took a shower this morning. You know, they did not. I'm going to keep them at a distance. But if someone who looks a little more, more like me and smells like me, uh, maybe I'll, you know, have them sit by me. And then you'll be proud. And you'll come and say, hey, you see that new person that came in? I asked him to sit by me. Isn't that awesome? That's good. And that is good. But if we make distinctions and we say, I only asked them because... I wasn't intimidated by it or because I actually thought that it gave me a good standing when I did that, right? You see the distinctions that have been made. We need to be very, very careful. We, we can continue on. In verse 6, it says, you have dishonored the poor man. And he says in verse 5, has God chosen, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? And so you look at them with your worldly eyes and you see poor man, God looks at them, should they have faith in Christ, and he says, rich, abundantly rich. Now, he looks poor to you, but I promise you he's not. So we need to start viewing one another with eyes that are, have a value system around them, right? And we're looking at each other with the same eyes. And we're saying, I'm going to look at you the way God looks at you. And that takes some modification in our minds, doesn't it? We need to work on that, don't we? Together. This is a a group effort. This is not something that just the leadership needs to make sure and do. However, do we need to do it and do it better? Yes. But we all need to do this together. Our value system. I just want to remind you, we're going to continue in the text, but Matthew eleven twenty-five through 27, Jesus said this, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to little children. Such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Anyone. And by the way, these things have been hidden from the wise and understanding. The wise and understanding of the world, they have been hidden. They don't see them. It, right. That's biblical terminology, isn't it? Take that right from Isaiah. They are hidden. Their eyes don't see it. Their ears don't, it's hidden. It's right there, but we say, here it is. Here's the wisdom of God. Here's the gospel. They don't see it. It's hidden from them. Who, who hid it? God. Could he uncover it? Who is the only one who can uncover it? God himself. Right? Who uncovered it for you? Well, 
in me, God had a little bit to work with. I was a little, I was a little smarter than average, so I figured it out. Wrong! I hope we see that already. I don't need to keep pressing into that one, do I? Wrong! But you know, this value system comes with, with the other side of things, and uh, I, I just want to show you, because we're talking about our value system, and we need to make sure that we have a proper value system that is a gospel-centered, biblically-centered value system and not a cultural value system so that we honor the right things and we shame the right things, okay? But this not only comes with things that are good, but it also comes with the things that are bad, the things that we shame. What things do we shame? What things do we say are good? Okay, good. Now, what things do we say are not good? The same as the world around us? What would you say to that? Do we shame the same things the world around us shames? No, but some of them, yes, wouldn't you say? That's some, there's some commonality. But listen to this. Listen to the text. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Just listen to what it says. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since you would have to go out of the world in that case. I'm not talking about them. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. And you say, well, that's not me. Listen to what else? Or greed, or as an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with them. Why? That's mean. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? And the answer to that is to the positive. Yes, it is those inside the church that we are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. Whoa. Does that fit with Southern hospitality? What do you think? I think not. So this hurts right here, doesn't it? 2 Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15, and we're going to move on from this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he might be ashamed. Don't regard him as an enemy, though, but warn him as a brother. So what should we shame? What should we bring shame upon? Those who disregard the scriptures. Do you see that? So do you see a value system coming together? And we are, for, we are always trying to better understand this value system, aren't we? And we try to live according to it. But the value system of Scripture that we're to have is different than the world around us and different than our culture. So we need to recalibrate, right? And we need to have this value system rather than the old value system that you brought in before you were in Christ. All that makes sense? I hope so. This is what I see as the heart of the text. So please take that home with you. I do want to work through the rest of this text. And as we do, what is the purpose of God's calling? What is the purpose of God's calling? The purpose of God's calling is to show that he alone is worthy of all glory and honor. And he sees to it that no one can boast in his presence. He sees to it himself. Oh, are you going to come and boast in my presence? No, God is making sure that you can't. God is making sure that you cannot boast in his presence. And how has he done so? By choosing not the wise ones, but the foolish ones by not choosing the powerful, but those who have no power. Not those who have noble birth, but those who are the nothings. So when you are in his presence, what are you going to say? Well, I know why you chose me. I know who my daddy was. I know why you chose me. I know how much money was in my bank account. You need that money. 
I know why you chose me. I'm intelligent. Wrong. No one can boast in the presence of God. And he is making sure of this. He, he was pleased to do this. He was pleased to make foolish the wisdom of the world. This is our God. And again, we are thankful. Why? Because we're the foolish, right? We are those who don't have power. We are those who have no goodness in us, and yet he chose us. That's a good God. Let's go to this final section. So we saw the cause of God's calling. God did not call you because of anything in you. He did it because of his own purpose and grace. That's good. What is the purpose of God's calling? Why did he do that? Because he wants to be sure that no one can boast in his presence, and he's making sure of that. Did you see that together with me? So what is the result then of God's calling? What happens? When all this is said and done, what is the result of God calling? This is good. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. And because of him, who's the him? God. You are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because of him. Because of who? Well, because of you, of course. Because of your goodness, of course. Because of your wisdom. Because of your power. Because of your nobility. Because of your status. You are in Christ Jesus because of you. Wrong. The contrast is incredible. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, not because of you. Who became to us wisdom from God? Who has that wisdom? We now have that wisdom. Who has that wisdom? The foolish ones. What just happened? The foolish, not the wise, get true wisdom. That's amazing, isn't it? That's what God has done for us. What is the result of God's... Well, I didn't even read. I didn't finish reading it. Let me finish reading it. I'm too, I'm too excited to move on. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Why? So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, because you know you're going to, but when you boast, make sure you boast in the Lord. And he is making sure that all of your boast, everything you have to say about any goodness, is the goodness of God is the greatness of God, is the wisdom of God, is the calling of God. Not you, it's not you, it's not me, it is not us, it is him. So let the one who boasts, boast in him, not in ourselves. A couple of things I want us to see. Uh, the result of God's calling is what? That his people have salvation. What happens when God calls? What happens when I call my dog? Well, not, I, I do have a dog that does not, call, that does not come when I call it. But it's, he's, he's blind and he's deaf. This is what a wonderful illustration. I have a dog who's blind and deaf. I have a dog who, this is, this is incredible. The blind and deaf dog is actually a good dog. The dog that can see <laughs> is the nothing of the world. It's amazing. How, did the, how is the nothing the one that actually calls when I come? That's just like us. When God calls, what happens? People come. 
Who comes? Those who hear. Because if you didn't hear God call, guess what you're not going to do? You're not going to come. But if you did hear God call, what are you going to do? No, thanks, not today. Wrong, because that's not what's saying. The result of God's calling is what? That his people have salvation. It is because of him we are in Christ Jesus. And what this means ultimately is this, is that God's calling is, first of all, unmerited, and is second, effective. The calling of God is unmerited. You didn't earn it, right? What is the cause of God's calling? Well, it's not you. So it's unmerited, but it is also effective that when God calls, what happens? You come. This is amazing. Now, we cannot cause God to call us. That's true. But how do we know that when God calls, all that he calls come? I will look at Romans 8, 28 through 30. This is a good one. If you've not, I know I've given you lots of references today. And by the way, as soon as the service is over, scratch that. Sometime this afternoon or tomorrow, um, I will upload all the notes with all these references for you, okay? So you can see on Planning Center, Church Center. Romans 8, 28 through 30, what I was saying is, if you've not flipped to references recently, because I've given you a lot, this is a wonderful one to turn to with me. I'm asking you to, I'm inviting you to. Turn to this one with me, please. Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. What is known in the theological world as the golden chain of redemption? It says... Have your ears perked, perked up for calling, the calling of God, and what happens to those who are called. Okay, you ready? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, how did they get called? Well, God called. There's nothing they could do to earn it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he, Christ, might be firstborn among many brothers. And listen to this. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. How many of the called ones are also justified? All of them. All of the called ones are justified. So what does that mean? That all of the called come. So God's calling is effective. Do you see it? God is the one who called and it had nothing to do with us. Thank God he calls. And thank God he opened my eyes to see him. Thank God he opened my ears to hear him. Thank God his calling is effectual because I would not have come if it was left to me. Why? Because I'm the nothing. All those called by God effectually come to him in faith and they are justified and they are glorified. There is a fantastic passage about the. Let's read it. Romans 9, verses 9 through 16. We're almost at the end this morning. We're almost there. Romans 9, 9 through 16. It's too good. It's too good to not read. Listen. For this is what the promise said. This time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. 
Uh, not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man and our forefather Isaac, though they had not yet been born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Did you see it? Why did he call one and not the other? His purpose and grace. That's why. There wasn't anything in them, was it? That's what the text just said. So it continues, though. So she was told, the older is going to serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what are we going to say then? Is there injustice on God's part? If you're hearing me this morning and you don't end up saying in your mind, unless you've already worked through it, that this is injustice on God's part, then you've not heard it properly. Because what you're saying is God calls and all those who are called effectively come to him. What of those who are not called? It seems like injustice on God's part. And that's exactly why he asked the question. Because you are going to hear this and you're going to say, injustice on God's part. And how does Paul respond to that charge against God? It says, by no means. For he says to Moses, this is the answer that we have to deal with. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So you're telling me there's some you're not going to have mercy on and others you will? Yes. There are some you're going to have compassion on and others you're not going to have compassion on? Yes. Well, that seems like injustice, God. Why not have mercy on them all? Why not have compassion on them all? Well, we already looked at the purpose of God's calling, didn't we? Does God have a purpose in who he calls? I hope you already saw that with me in the text. But we better read verse 16. So then, here's the theological summary. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Nothing you can do. You can't muster up enough will to go run into God unless he calls. Do you see that in the text? hope you do. The final thing I want us to see this morning, which is not truly the final thing. I flipped in my notes. I do have a couple more things, but they'll be quick, okay? We cannot see salvation in Christ as true wisdom without the sovereign work of God by his spirit. Do you know that to be true? you're going to continue to think in the same terms as the world around you, seeing wisdom the way they see it. Unless a sovereign work of the Spirit of God comes upon you and you have a new mind and you have new thinking. And all of a sudden, I used to see that as true wisdom and I no longer do. Actually, I see that as shameful and foolish now. I hope that change has happened for you. And I hope that every day goes on, you see that more and more and you are continually being conformed into the image of Christ, that you are growing in your maturity in Christ. And how do you do that? By being conformed to the word. How am I conformed to the word? By the work of the Spirit of God as we interact with his word, which he authored for us. So if your life is void of the word of God, what do you think I might recommend to you this morning? Be in the word. Be in the word of God. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Christ Jesus, you want to find him? Read his word. You can know him. And we pray that God might open your eyes and might call you into salvation, that you might see him, and that you might come running 
Do your eyes see him? He quotes here out of Jeremiah. You know, that's a quotation in our text, right? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a quotation from the Old Testament, which Paul's very familiar with. This particular quotation is out of Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Let me just read those two verses, and you're going to see how practical this is. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. This is in Jeremiah. This is not Paul. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. That's Jeremiah. He didn't even quote that part. Excuse me. But let him who boasts boast in this. You want to boast? Boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So if you truly understand, if you truly understand that God is the one who calls and God is the one who effectively brings into salvation, then when you boast of God, you boast of your salvation, who are you boasting in? God and his work. Does that make sense? So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want you to see one final thing with me. Paul talks about righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Do you see it? Wisdom, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Do you see that in your text? What does that mean? I think with all of this being said this morning, I'm going to just do a brief explanation of this, and I think it's all going to come together. I told you there was a great reversal coming. Maybe you thought it already happened. This is the reversal I'm talking about. This right here is the climax of the whole thing. Don't miss it. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. True wisdom is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He became to us wisdom from God. Who is wisdom? Jesus Christ is wisdom. True wisdom is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay? We're okay on that so far, right? That's good. That's the basis of the great reversal. True wisdom is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So look with me just briefly at my favorite passage in all of Scripture, just for a moment. Maybe you might see why it's so, so much my favorite. This is Colossians 1, 28 through chapter 2, verse 3. It's very brief, just a couple of verses, and this is actually my final point here, okay? Even though there are three sub-points to my final point, this is my final point. Colossians 1, 28 through chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Him we proclaim. Who is Him? Who is Him? Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him. And we warn everyone. And we teach everyone with all wisdom. How do we teach people with wisdom? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have seen, not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are, where, there, there are treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where are they found? In Christ Jesus. So as you seek out Christ Jesus in his word, what are you actually seeking out? Treasures of wisdom. Wisdom upon wisdom upon wisdom. Treasures of wisdom. I hope that you see it. That the word of God is treasures of wisdom. Do you want treasure? Do you want treasure? I bet you do. I know you all do. Everybody wants treasure. It's here. And yet we neglect it. And we seek out treasures in other places because we think in them is salvation or in them is finally comfort for my soul. In them is the peace that I've been looking for. Wrong value system. What should you value? You should value God, your salvation, and his word because his word points you to himself. What do you value in your home? What do you value in your personal life? Where are your values? Do you value God's church? Or do you value other things that consume your time? All of a sudden, your value system is coming into focus. I have not been valuing the right things. And it proves to be the case where I spend all my time and effort and energy. Those are the things you value. What do you value? What is your value system? All right, the great reversal. Here it is. I almost started on something totally different. Here it is. Our righteous standing. I hope you see it. This comes back to the verse 26. Our righteous standing, righteousness, is produced by God's own righteousness, not ours. And what is that? Nobility, standing, status. Those who have no status are given absolute status in Christ. Next, our sanctification is produced by God's own power, not ours. How is it that we come into sanctification? By power. But whose power? God's power. So do you see back at the beginning, those who had status thought they had something, but in fact they have nothing. But if you come to Christ Jesus, guess what you have? Status. Those who thought they had power actually needed to realize they have no power, but when you come to God in faith, guess what you get? Power. And the final thing, our redemption, which the words are not showing up. Our redemption is purchased by God's own wealth, not ours. And what do you have now? Wealth. So those who have nothing are given everything. But first you must see that you are nothing. And once you realize you are nothing, you are given absolutely everything. And that's the great reversal. It's all a work of God. Do you see it? Praise God for what he has done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for teaching us, for loving us, for caring for us, for calling us, for saving us, for taking the nothings and actually in Christ making us something in the one who is everything. It is not our knowledge, our status, our power, our wealth, or anything that you're looking for, but 
We were actually looking for those who are of no reputation, who have nothing, who are the nothings, and you are calling them to show that if we boast about anything in this life, what are we going to boast in? We're going to boast in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We're going to boast in all that you have done for us. Help us to be those people. Help us to reevaluate our value systems that we might be honoring the right thing, that we might be shaming the right thing because we see true value and worth the way that you do. This is what we desire. Give us help in this, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.